for our Advent sermon series this year, we're looking at the women who are included in the genealogy of Jesus that Matthew provides in chapter 1. And the series is titled The Mothers of Jesus. And if you were here last time, and of course many of you weren't, uh, we dealt with Tamar. And uh, this morning we're going to look at the story of Rahab as we find it in Joshua 2. Rahab is one of the four women whose name appears quite often, in fact, in the New Testament. And one of those places where you find the name Rahab is in James 2. And so I'm going to invite Kim forward, and she will read this section from James 2, where Rahab is mentioned. James 2, verses 20 to 26. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see, that a person, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is the word of the Lord. As we prepare to read the text, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Our dear Father, in a world full of distractions, we pray that by your Spirit you would enable us to focus not simply on your Word, but on Him who is unveiled by your Word, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, and that as our attention in this Advent season is to be directed to Christ and His coming, so may our attention in this service be directed to Christ of whom this passage speaks. We thank you that your word is not simply a book of information, but a means by which you change us. And we pray that by means of your Spirit today, you would change us to be more like Christ. In his name we pray, amen. I invite you, if you have Bibles, to turn with me to the book of Joshua. We're going to read, as I said a moment ago, from chapter 2, the story of Rahab. Joshua 2, and of course you're free to read the text as it is projected on the screen in the sanctuary. Joshua 2, this is found in the context of the people of Israel 
entering the land of Canaan to displace the Canaanites and occupy the land that was long promised to them by the Lord. Joshua chapter 2. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come out to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into the house. If any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told them everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land 
into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. This is the word of the Lord. In the genealogy of Jesus that Matthew records for us in chapter 1 of his gospel, we encounter 42 men and only four women besides Mary. And if you were someone who was familiar with the Bible's teaching, and you had to guess which four women were included in the genealogy of Jesus, you might guess Sarah and Rebecca, Leah and Rachel. But instead, we find these names, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Why? these four women? Well, I'll tell you the traditional answer. The traditional answer is that these four women are included to demonstrate that there are skeletons in Jesus' genealogical closet. All of these women, people would often say, engaged in some kind of dubious sexual activity in order to demonstrate that the Lord Jesus Christ came to liberate people from their sin. And if you would have asked me to preach on the mothers of Jesus 10 years ago, that's probably the point I would have made. This is a demonstration that Jesus came to save sinners because in his own genealogy we have these immoral people. What I've been struck by as I study the stories of these women is how the Bible has very little to say about them but praise. The Bible hardly speaks a negative word against any one of these women. It is true that in some cases there is a measure of sexual inappropriateness in their lives, but in every case it is the men who are held responsible. In fact, in every single instance, each of these women is hurt, is mistreated by men. The question then becomes, well, why then are these women included in the genealogy of Jesus? Well, I think now that these are the stories of courageous women who, in the face of threats and danger, pursue justice, albeit through unconventional means. And of course, last Sunday, we had opportunity to look at the story of Tamar. She pursued justice through unconventional means, namely disguise and deceit. But we find the very same variables in the story of Rahab this morning. But there's something else that we need to see this morning and in subsequent Sundays, and that is this, that behind every faithful mother in Israel stands a faithful son. Behind every courageous mother in Israel stands a loyal son, and this story isn't just a story about Rahab, it's a story of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are told in the New Testament that Jesus accompanied the people of Israel in their journey through time, and so we need to see that Christ is already active here in this story. He is, in fact, preparing for his coming, and what we see him do in this section is he chooses a homeland, Jericho, less than 20 miles 
20 kilometers from Bethlehem, and he chooses his mother, Rahab. Because Rahab in due time would marry someone from the tribe of Judah, and she would become the foremother, not just of David, but of Jesus himself. The names of these women in the genealogy of Jesus are the names of heroines. And this morning, as we look at the story of Rahab, we're going to see that she is, first of all, a shady heroine, and secondly, a trusting heroine, and thirdly, an exceptional heroine. Rahab is a heroine, a shady heroine, a trusting heroine, and an exceptional heroine. Well, the land of Canaan, you ought to know, was one polluted by idolatry and immorality, which is why God, some 450 years prior, threatened to destroy Canaan, but he waited until the cup of the Canaanite sin was full. He was patient for literally hundreds of years for the Canaanites who were immoral and idolatrous, but at one point his patience was exhausted and he determined that the time had come to judge the people of Canaan. And in this passage, he sends Joshua into the land of Canaan to displace the Canaanites in order for the land to be occupied by the Israelites. And Joshua, of course, sends out two spies to explore the west bank of the Jordan and especially the Jericho fortress to see what they were up against. Joshua, this is his first act as the successor to Moses, sends out these spies. And so the spies approach the city of Jer Jericho, and there they enter a house uh, that's in the city wall, and they meet Rahab. Well, what do we know about Rahab? We can say three things about her this morning. She is, first of all, a Gentile. She is a pagan woman. She belongs to this people group that is under God's judgment. She belongs to this people group that God has threatened to destroy. She is a pagan woman and a Gentile. She and her people are destined for destruction. But she's not only a Gentile, she is a prostitute. The older commentaries would use the language of a harlot in a heathen land, not just a pagan woman, but a prostitute. And throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, when she is referred to, she is most often referred to as Rahab the prostitute. Now, the spies had, we think, deliberately chosen her house as a place to stay because it was the least suspicious. Presumably, there were people coming and going to this house, and so nobody would bat an eye when they found their way to that house. But somehow, the news of the Israelites' arrival in Jericho had become public. And it gets even the attention of the king. Like Balak, king of Moab, who was fearful of Israelites because of the threat that they posed, this king, the king of Jericho, is worried. And he sends a message to Rahab, you need to turn over the men that you have in your house who've come from Israel. And then we discover the third thing about Rahab. She's not only a pagan and a prostitute, but a liar. 
because uh, she speaks to the king's men and she tells a series of lies. She admits that they came to her house, but she says, I don't know where they came from. And they're no longer here anymore, they've left. And I don't know where they've gone. She tells a series of lies. She misleads the king's men and sends them off in the wrong direction. Now, at this point, the moral police blow the whistle and they write up a ticket. Rahab, three counts of lying. Well, there are Bible scholars who say we should cut Rahab some slack. There was a famous Bible scholar who said, well, what do you expect from a pagan prostitute? She was accustomed to a life of vice. She's accustomed to lying. We should not be so hard on her. Others are inclined, and I'm in this category, to exonerate Rahab completely, though I don't do it in the way that many people do. There are many who exonerate her in terms of the ethics of warfare. And it's widely established, both among Christians and non-Christians, that in times of warfare, deceit is permissible. And you find this kind of deceit in the context of warfare, even in the Old Testament. Israel will sometimes set an ambush, fighting against her enemies to deceive the nations. We discover that David places Hushai as a mole among the ranks of Absalom in order to gather information from Absalom's people. But I don't think that this needs to be defended in terms of the ethics of warfare where deception is permissible. I prefer to understand that in this way, that in terms of all the responsibilities that God gives us, there is a gradation. And some responsibilities are more important than other responsibilities. And we know this in part from what Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He says, you tithe your spices, your dill, your mint, your cumin, but you ignore the weightier matters of the law, matters of mercy and justice. There is a hierarchy, a gradation of responsibilities that we have to the Lord. Tithing is down near the bottom somewhere, and showing mercy to your neighbor is up high. And I think that the higher responsibilities sometimes exempt us from the lower responsibilities. And Rahab, out of her love for her neighbor, specifically these Israelite spies, was exempt from having to tell the truth. Some of you may know the name Benno Holberda. He was a famous uh, Dutch scholar, and he said of this passage that faithfulness to neighbor trumps faithfulness to the facts. And if you were to study the ninth commandment, which forbids telling lies, you would see that the ultimate concern of the ninth commandment is the well-being and welfare of the neighbor. So, Rahab is a Gentile and a pagan, and she is a prostitute, and she is a liar, but nowhere, no point in the Bible is she culpable for this lying. Secondly, in addition to being a shady heroine, she is a trusting heroine. She, in fact, is a professing believer, and she indicates to the spies that when the Canaanites heard reports of Israelite conquests and Israelite activity, their hearts 
melted with fear. Their courage evaporated. Evidently, reports of the crossing at the Red Sea and some of Israel's exploits were well known throughout the ancient Near East, even though they happened some 40 years prior. And the people were fearful. We know that this wasn't just true of the king of Jericho. It was true of other kings at that time as well. And what we discover is that whereas all of this all of these reports instill fear in the hearts of the Canaanites. They actually instill faith in the heart of Rahab. And she reaches this conclusion that because of these successful conquests of Israel in the past and the fear of her Canaanites, the fear of the Canaanites of Israel... She believes two things are true. One, that the God of Israel is giving the land of Canaan to Israel. And two, that the God of Israel is in fact the one great God seated on high. She professes her faith, verse 11, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. And so in the Bible you discover that Rahab is celebrated for her faith. Hebrews 11.31, By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who are or who were disobedient. But the interesting thing for us this morning is that Rahab is celebrated not only as a heroine of faith, she's celebrated as a heroine of works. Her faith, we discover, is not a private faith, but a public faith. Her faith is not a passive faith, but an active faith. It's not a lazy faith, it's a busy faith. Rahab, because of her faith, is very active and industrious throughout this passage. She lies to the king's men, which required some courage, ultimately enabled them to escape down this rope through her window. She risks her life and betrays her own people because she wants to be aligned with Israel's God. And so she is celebrated for her works. James 2.25, in the same way, was not even the prostitute Rahab considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. She is a professing believer. She's an action figure. And thirdly, she's a family girl because she requests help for her family. Having been merciful to the spies, she requests mercy for her family. Verse 12, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sign. She wants her father and her mother and her brothers and her sisters to be spared. When the great judgment befalls Canaan, when Israel comes to destroy her people, she's a shady heroine, pagan, prostitute, liar. She's a trusting heroine, a professing believer, an action figure, a family girl. And we're going to see lastly that she's an exceptional heroine. What is so striking for me reading this passage is how quickly 
she gains the trust of these Israelite men who take her at her word and who promise her assistance. They do not seem to converse even among themselves. They do not consult with Joshua. Immediately they make plans to rescue her. Their dedication and commitment to her is so great that they're pledging their own lives. They say, our lives for yours in verse 14. And they tell her to leave the scarlet rope that they descended down to escape, hanging out of her window. And this would mark her house off from the total destruction that would come upon Canaan momentarily. The very same scarlet rope that she used to save them, they will use to save her. They will repay her for her kindness using the very same thing she used in her kindness. And they immediately accept her as a converted prostitute into the fellowship of Israel. Now, when the Israelites came, if you know the story, her house was, of course, spared. And she and her family were saved. She stood as a woman vindicated with that single scarlet cord hanging from her window. Now, what is the meaning of this story? What is the meaning of this scarlet rope? Well, everything about the story makes us think of the Passover. There's a lot of terminology in this uh, story that reminds us of the exodus from Egypt and the story of the Passover. When, you remember, on that final night, the night of the Passover, the angel of death came to the land of Egypt to take the firstborn of the Egyptians, and the Israelites were told that they and their families would be spared if they had the blood of the Passover lamb painted on their doorposts. And if the blood of the Passover lamb was painted on their doorposts, then they and their families would be spared. It's a repeat of that story. If Rahab hangs the scarlet rope out of her window, she and her family will be spared when destruction comes to Jericho. So Rahab is received into the people of God, and she's adopted as a daughter of God. And yet this morning we need to recognize that not only is she adopted as a daughter of God, she's adopted as a mother of Jesus. And we're not exactly sure how this happens. There's a lot of scholarly conjecture, but she married into someone from the tribe of Judah and eventually became the foremother of David and ultimately of Christ. Like the three other women in the genealogy of Jesus that Matthew provides, she has Gentile background. That is significant. Like Tamar, she is a Canaanite. Rohab, not Rohab, Ruth, a Moabite. Bathsheba, married to a Hittite. All of them with non-Jewish origins. 
so that we see that already in the ancestry of Jesus, already in the genealogy of Jesus, we see the inclusion of Gentiles. So that the very person of Jesus who was Jewish had foreign blood running through his veins. Rahab had also been a prostitute. Is it fitting, you say, for a prostitute to become a princess and for a prostitute to become a mother of Jesus? Well, it's a sign, isn't it, that God in the person of Christ has come to save sinners? And what is true of every single person in the genealogy of Jesus, man and woman, is that they were sinners, that they did things they shouldn't have done. But I've begun to wonder, having already preached now, well, I'm not quite done this sermon, but preaching a couple of sermons, that there is maybe even in the genealogy of Jesus, something of the heart of God for victims of mistreatment. Every single one of these women, at one point or another, mistreated by a man. And so it's fitting that this pagan prostitute should become a messianic mother. And so we don't miss the point there is in the Gospel of Matthew, in the account of the ministry of Jesus, a repeat of this very story. And Jesus and his disciples are going about, it's early on, and Jesus instructs his disciples very explicitly. He tells them to go nowhere among the Gentiles because his ministry initially is going to be for the Jews the scattered sheep of Israel. And at one point in his ministry, Jesus is approached by a woman. It's Matthew 15. Mark calls her a Syrophoenician woman, but Matthew, interestingly and intentionally and deliberately, calls her a Canaanite woman. He is approached by a Canaanite woman, and the word Canaanite would have evoked in Matthew's readers and presumably in Matthew's and the disciples of Jesus at, at that moment, all of this ancient fear. This fear of the foreigner. The enemies of Abraham and the enemies of the Jews. A Canaanite woman. And Jesus, you see, in the Gospel of Matthew is being depicted as a new Joshua with his own Jordan River crossing. And the question becomes, what kind of Joshua is Jesus going to be? And what's he going to do with the Canaanites, with the indigenous pagans living in the land of Palestine, polluting the land with their immorality and idolatry? Well, the question comes to a head when he is approached by a Canaanite woman. And she cries out to Jesus, this is Matthew 15, 22, Lord, son of David, she says, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. And Jesus doesn't say anything. And the disciples are 
quick to dismiss her. They want her out of the way. She keeps following them, crying and weeping. And finally, Jesus turns to her. He says something surprising. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. What are you doing, a Canaanite, approaching me? And if you know the story, she persists with requests, Lord, please help me. And finally, Jesus says, woman, you have great faith. Your request is healed. Your request is heard. And her daughter was healed in that moment. Jesus, you see, is the new Joshua. And this Canaanite woman who approaches him is a new Rahab. And the parallels between the two are extraordinary when I identify them. Both are Canaanites. Both profess faith. Both take the initiative. Both ask for help for family. Both receive what they ask for. Both, by their exceptional faith, are exceptions to the rules about the Canaanites. All the Canaanites destroyed, but this exceptional woman who, on account of her exceptional faith, clings to the God of Israel. Jesus has come for the lost sheep of Israel with the exception of this woman who, by exceptional faith, embraces Jesus as the Son of God. And how was Rahab saved, given her history of sin? And how was this Canaanite woman saved, given her presence and contribution to idolatry and moral pollution? And how are you and me saved, most of us, I would imagine, Gentile in origin, sinner by identity? Well, you know, that red rope hanging from the prostitute's window is meant to recall the blood that was painted on the doorposts of the Israelite homes by which they were spared. But of course, it's also meant to point to the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If there's any place that we find shelter when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, it's going to be under the atoning red blood of Christ. Because through the blood of Christ that we're forgiven of our sins, it's through the blood of Christ that we're reconciled to the Father. It's through the blood of Christ that we are accepted into his family with our perverted past, with our history as strangers and foreigners to the covenants of grace. It is through the blood of Christ that the new covenant is established. And so this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we consume bread, we drink juice, meant to portray for us, to dramatize for us the broken body of Christ, broken for broken people, and the shed blood of Christ poured out 
for sinners. And when you peer into your cup or see the juice poured, see the scarlet red, think about the blood of the Passover lamb under which the Israelites enjoyed safety. Think about the scarlet rope that hung from Rahab's window under which she and her family experienced safety. But ultimately think about the atoning blood of Christ in which we experience safety by faith. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you for reminding us again of the work of Jesus and of the blood that he shed. And we thank you that you fill Scripture with stories and images of the cross so that we are reminded at every turn about the ministry of Jesus. And what we pray for more than anything else this morning is that we come to see ourselves as broken people who offend you and say and do things we ought not to say and do, but we pray that we would come to see Jesus afresh for who he is as the one who gave his life for ours. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.